Hello and welcome back to the Tez News Podcast. I hope you've all had a fantastic holiday season, however you choose to celebrate. Uh, at Tez, we're all back now to catch you up on some of the big education stories from the break. My name is Joshua Morris. A little bit later in the episode, I'll be talking to senior editor Dan Worth. But first, I'm joined by two of our reporters here at Tez, Matilda Martin. Welcome back, Matilda. Hi, Joshua. How was, uh, how was your break? Not bad. Not bad. Did absolutely nothing. So it's actually perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it's supposed to be, I think. <laughs> and also joined by John Roberts. John, how was your break? Hi there. Yeah, not too bad. Thanks. No, all, all went by too quickly, sadly. Yeah, I was saying to, to Dan a little bit earlier, you kind of just get straight back into it, don't you? A bit too quickly. So uh, to start off with, we're going to begin with a story that we kind of left last year primed, I guess, like a runner at the starting blocks, ready to leap into action, industrial action, I should say, because it is, of course, uh, the possibility of teacher strikes. For those of you working in education listening, I think it'll be hard to have missed this, as several education unions have taken steps towards industrial action over pay. Of course, we've already seen strikes across, uh, across the public sector, and it looks, Matilda, like it's very likely that teachers are, are next, right? Yes, well, um, that's what we, we thought in, until yesterday. Um, so yesterday we had the results of um, the first teaching union to announce their ballots um, over strike action. Um, and they failed to meet the legal threshold um, in order to take legal strike action. So in order for uh, strike action to be legal, you have to uh, meet the 50% threshold of, of anyone voting, you know, whether that's they vote yes or no. Um, and 40% have to be in favour um, um, of, of the total membership. Um, and just 42% of, of um, eligible members voted, um, which obviously misses that, that halfway mark that, that they needed. And I think this was in a way unexpected. You know, like you said, we've been kind of, you know, the rest of the public sector have, you know, mostly all, all met those thresholds and been going out on strike. And it did seem that teachers were just kind of going to be the next, the next walkout. Um, so that was, that was a bit of a shock, but we've got to remember, we've got two more ballots that have closed this week. So one from NEHT, um, school leaders union and one from NEU, which is the biggest education union. And we're both looking for those results to be published on Monday. Um, so I think slightly different mood now. We're maybe not so sure if they are going to meet the threshold, but I guess we'll just have to, to wait and see. Is there an expectancy that the other unions will follow suit there or are we expecting to see that they might go ahead we i, I think it's kind of imp impossible to say um you know from you know from conversations that, that i've had i think you know they're really hoping that they're going to meet meet those thresholds um but we really really don't know at this stage and i think another aspect i mean we after the story broke yesterday about nazwit failing to meet those those thresholds um we actually found that quite a few of the Nazwit members were, were claiming to have never received their ballot in the post in the first place. Um, and obviously, if you, if you don't receive a ballot, you can't vote. Um, and, you know, voting is important, like we've just said, whether you vote yes or no, you could be part of allowing that, that union to take legal strike action. Um, whether that's postal, postal strikes affecting, affecting that, or whether it's kind of you know, another issue entirely. Um, I think maybe we'll be going into these next results with a bit of apprehension about about whether, you know, members have have managed to, one, post their ballot back or two, received it in the first place. I think there's, there was something really jarring about it, I think. Um, 
because in a way we've, as journalists, we get the kind of the strength of the message from the, the top of the unions. And I think both over funding and pay, there's been such strong feeling in the sector for so long. Um, sure. And so we've had a, a sense really that this was coming down the line, that there'd be industrial action um, and even the, the, the announcement of extra funding for schools from the government hasn't really changed the mood of, of union leadership. So you've kind of got this, this sense that the, the profession is galvanizing in one direction towards industrial action, like so many other sectors, as you say. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, they didn't get to 50%. And, you know, quite a bit short of it in a way. I mean, 42%, but it's... Um, and as Matilda said, there's almost two bits of reaction. One, you've got some people saying, well, this shows that the government's trade union laws are unfair. Um, because, you know, the vast, vast majority of people who did vote in the NSUWT vote wanted to strike, but it wasn't 50%. But I think there will be some very difficult questions for that particular union if uh, we had really, Matilda did a great story last night, really worth reading, basically kind of lifting the lid on problems some members have had and been able to take part in the, in the ballot process. Depending on how widespread that is, the, then that could become quite controversial. But yeah, it, it definitely gives a different feel to to the to the next two results. There's a real tension to it, I think, because I don't want to speculate, and this might sound silly if they, they overwhelmingly pass the threshold. Um, and certainly at the NEU, I think it would be an even bigger surprise if they didn't. I think is how I'd, how I'd characterize it. But um, it completely would. Ch- I think the government would feel incredibly strengthened if they get to a point where in this sector. Um, you know, the two main teaching unions didn't, didn't go out, didn't have enough um, members to go out. And you've also got like the bizarre situation where you might have school leaders, you know, at least one school leader union voting for industrial action when a teaching union hasn't. And that's, um, I don't know, that, that, that again will be a very striking dynamic in schools if that, if that plays out. Yeah, certainly be interesting. And I think as well, John, going off what you're saying, lifting questions on, on the balloting, I think as well, it's just kind of reignited questions about, you know, how how up to date are we in the way we vote for strike action? So I think a lot of people kind of saying, well, we're just doing it online, you know, it completely solve all these problems of, you know, things getting lost in the post, you know, especially with the postal strikes. Um, so that's another whole aspect of it. You know, does our whole system need to kind of have a bit of a rethink? Um, and obviously, like John said, there is the anger over that 50% threshold, especially as that's something the Conservatives did bring in um, in the last five years. So yeah, it's an interesting time. Yeah, I think a bit like tangential to this story is another story that was on our site this morning that there's actually, and you mentioned it there about school leaders, that there's actually been a huge increase in job vacancies for senior leaders as well. Is that an indicator of that the current conditions for teachers are having an impact now on their desire to even stay in the profession? Yeah, I think it's certainly indicative of it. I mean, we've been hearing stories for for years now about, you know, the increased stress and burden on, on senior leaders. Um, and especially over the pandemic, I think a lot was saying that, you know, enough is enough. And I've heard from from plenty of senior leaders who said they, they're thinking of retiring earlier um, that, than they were going to. But you've also got, you know, the other side of the pipeline whereby, you know, people who were middle leaders are now looking at that senior leadership position and, and thinking, do I really want that? You know, is uh, I'm not getting, you know, that much extra money for, I think one of the leaders said to me, the extra grief that that comes with that role. Um, and I think it's it's particularly uh, concerning, especially given the low recruitment numbers. It looks like we've got, you know, at both ends, we haven't got enough coming in and we haven't, we, we've got too many leaving. And I think things like this really do set, set patterns for, for years to come. You know, even if we tomorrow suddenly recruit 
50,000 new teachers. Um, this is really the knock-on effects of, of the high attrition and low recruitment are going to be in the system for, for years. Yeah, it's definitely one to keep an eye out on here. When are we expecting to hear results of the of the other ballots? So um, I think both both are now now telling us Monday. Um, I think NEHT will probably be, you know, I guess middle of the day. NEU actually doing a, a live stream on Facebook of the results of their ballot, um, which on one hand makes me think they must be really super confident um, that they're going to have met it, but. I, I guess if, if they haven't, it would be a good platform for them to kind of, you know, continue yeah. with the narrative they had yesterday of, you know, the strike laws are unfair, et cetera. So. That almost, that almost feels like the trade union equivalent of the kind of the, the confident kid opening exam results live on TV. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to go that way. Yeah. Uh, whilst we're talking strikes, the, the other story that Matilda did that's, um, that's really good this week is we got the, um, we're talking about um, the 50% threshold and, you know, the sense that the government is making it increasingly difficult for people to take industrial action. Um, we went through the kind of the wording of the actual new strike legislation that they're bringing through. And, and one bit it has in there is um, this idea that in, in sectors that are deemed as vital public services and education is one, um, they could create this thing where by people who are given a work notice and they are expected to work through a strike even if their union's gone on strike. And if they don't do so, if they took part in the strike when they were given this work notice, then they would lose protections against unfair dismissal. Now, that's quite a way down the road. And they've said that they don't want to impose standards on the edge, on school sector and they want to, um, want to reach voluntary agreements. But it's, a, it's another really interesting story because it's another, another indication of the direction of travel of government to make industrial action overpay more and more difficult. Um, and uh, whilst the unions sort of rejected it strongly and we haven't had a sense that that's definitely coming in for schools by any means, and it might not get to that, um, it's nevertheless, it's, um, you know, the unions are already, well, the first union over, out of the gate hasn't managed to, to launch industrial action. So, you know, if we get to a point where legislation changes and it's harder for teachers to be involved in strikes, yeah, the stakes will just be raised even more for unions if, if they continue to be unhappy over pay in future. Absolutely. And it, like you said, John, about, about this new legislation, talking about, the, you know, the minimum safety levels that the government's trying to bring in in education. Um, you know, just thinking about how many teachers before strike action are going to be given these work notices saying that they're necessary to keep the school, you know, safe and functioning. Because I think we all know at the moment that because of, you know, supply issues, a lot of schools already struggle to kind of keep keep classes going as it is. So, you know, you could end up with this ridiculous scenario in which hardly anyone is allowed to go on strike in order to meet those minimum safety levels, um, which does kind of, you know, put, put into question what, what would strike action look like in the future. But as John said, we are a while off, off this. Um, I think we've got the second reading of the bill on Monday um, and it's obviously got to get through the House of Laws, which I think people are anticipating a bit of pushback from. Um, but yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, definitely one to, to look out for on our site next week. Now, John, you cover Offset for us here at Tez, and this week you've gone over some really interesting data that's come up from School Dash on the trends in Offset reports, specifically how frequently certain words actually show up in the language of, of Offset reports. There was a nice kind of word cloud here, and what those words might indicate for their shift in focus over the years. What, what in that data stood out to you? Yeah, you see, um, I was really interested in this. I've sadly been covering um, this for a long, long time. So it kind of resonated with me because I, I've been an education journalist for a while and I guess I've seen Ofsted reports change over time. But yeah, Schools Dash have uh, done a, a big 
comprehensive analysis of um, inspection um, reports and outcomes. But one of the things they've done, as you say, is this um, this kind kind of interactive tool where you can basically see how often a word is uh, 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 occurs in a month's worth of inspection reports, and they've measured it by how many mentions per thousand words. Um, and some are really sort of stable, and others come and go. The one that's most notable, but probably least surprising to people in the sector, is curriculum has risen and risen and risen, and in the last two or three years, absolutely shot, shot up. And that comes because of a new Ofsted framework. So the inspection education inspection framework they use now places massive emphasis on curriculum and less emphasis, I think it's fair to say, on exams and test results. Um, nonetheless, from 2014 to today, or to November of last year, is the most recent data they had, it's kind of gone up more than tenfold, the mention of curriculum. So it just shows how, you know, the, the lens with which Hofstede looks at schools has changed and therefore the expectations on what schools have got to be able to talk about and present uh, uh, and project has changed. Um, the other side of that coin is that mentions of words like assessment and attainment have dropped dramatically. Mm. And again, that, that reflects the same pattern, really. I think it was a deliberate change by Ofsted that they, I think the criticism of Ofsted going back four or five years was a school could be doing really well, but has a really challenging intake or situation, or has just had a turnaround. And consequently, our results don't necessarily reflect how good we are. That's what the school might say. And they would say, but nonetheless, Ofsted places so much weight on the exam results. The best we can get as it requires improvement. Ofsted changed it to kind of say, we, you would, we, we recognize that we've had too much emphasis on just the results. So now we want to get, in Amanda Spielman's words, I think she always says, the substance of education, which is the curriculum. What do you teach? Why do you teach it? How do you teach it? And what impact does it have? Um, but yeah, so those two things um, kind of completely changed. So, um, and the other word that really went down uh, as part of this one is progress, which is interesting because you think that is still a kind of a, a fundamental thing that, that Ofsted and teachers would talk about. But nevertheless, progress used to be sort of much more common. And then in, in the new framework is, um, yeah, as a dramatic drop. Yeah, you mentioned that these these changes specifically to to things like curriculum, they're reflective there of the change in the framework. But um, also, I think in the article, it, it does mention that there seems to actually be an indication that some of these these trends are changing before the framework comes into place, right? Curriculum mentions went, went up gradually from 2014 onwards. So perhaps, in a sense, Ofsted's new framework was brought in at a time when there had been a growing sense in the education world that curriculum was important. Um, there's some other changes as well that kind of, um, that another kind of year I looked at as that seemed to be quite, I don't know, pivotal as a kind of change point is maybe the change of government in 2010 um, um, and the change of frameworks that followed off instead of adding new inspection frameworks in 2012 and in the middle of the last decade as well. The behaviour jumps up in 2012 and becomes very, very prominent, having not been talked about uh, as much before. And that reflects the, the, the focus of the, the chief inspector of the day, I think. Um, community, conversely, community dropped off for much of the, um, the previous decade. Um, so it was kind of very, you know, a, a more regularly used word in reports in the noughties, dropped off over the, the, the decade just gone. Um, but it has increased again in, um, in more recent reports. I mean, I guess it's, Fair to say that, you know, these, these are, the measure is mentions per thousand words. So sometimes like one to two is a hundred percent increase. So it looks striking on a graph. But yeah, sometimes these things are, are really noticeable. The other thing that's really noticeable, I think, is um, English and math 
has dropped down, both both separately and together as a phrase. And again, I, I think that speaks to the thing that Ofsted thought, Ofsted, when he brought his new framework in, it was concerned that schools were teaching to the test too much. And so English and maths at primary school in particular, um, and I guess back in the day at the GCSE, it was one of the, the key performance measures for secondary schools was um, 5A start to see, including English and maths. So they were like, the, the, the focus, like how well schools did that was a really big part of how they were measured. And Ofsted's new framework is kind of, and it shows in the data here, it was kind of fun. I think it's fun. For education geeks, I think it's fun. It's fun to see the data sort of illustrating quite starkly what you know, which is that the Ofsted inspection framework has kind of torn up the landscape slightly. And if any schools that were really, really focused on, um, on SAT scores aren't necessarily going to find Ofsted talking about that. They're not going to want to ask about that. And it's not going to necessarily play in your favor. But schools are still measured on their SATS results. So it's kind of, um, yeah, I guess in a way it shows that in, in, in league tables in Ofsted, you've got two faces of accountability asking different things of schools. But yes, yeah, um, we've done a big long piece kind of exploring it. And the Schools Dash interactive tool is, um, is definitely worth a play around with because it's, um, yeah, they've, 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 they basically just identified any key topic words that they've found as, as interesting to, to their audience. And so it's quite a comprehensive thing. But, but the shifts over time are really um, striking to see. If I can just jump in there, John, I thought the thing that was really interesting for me was the attendance, um, especially as kind of, I know that obviously the government's just opened its big um, inquiry or the education committee rather into attendance. And I think in the piece it said that mentions of attendance actually dropped off after 2021. Is that right? Yeah, that's, um, that's something a couple of people mentioned, actually. The other, the other thing I guess to briefly mention is COVID, COVID has this kind of cameo where it just comes in really high. So they didn't, um, they didn't include reports in 2020 because routine inspection was stopped. So they said they didn't have enough data for it to be meaningful. But when they resume again in September 2021, COVID's there at more than two. And then it's kind of gradually declined over time. But yeah, attendance, as you say, it's been such a big policy focus, both in terms of kind of COVID impact and concern about increases in persistent absence. I wonder, given the kind of things you're talking about, the Select Committee hearing and the things the Children's Commission has said, whether maybe if schools they to run this again in five years' time, maybe we will see attendance be attendance and catch up be kind of um, key features of a of a new Ofsted framework. Mm. I think um, another thing that stood out from this analysis is that 2022 had the fewest requires improvement Ofsted grades since the grade was created ten years ago, didn't it? So schools dash um, have done it calendar year. So the official data we get from Ofsted is academic year. But um, schools that have done this by calendar year. So yeah, that's that's really interesting for a couple of reasons, I think. Um, one, when this grade was introduced, so previously um, the third grade of Ofsted was satisfactory, which obviously kind of speaks for itself. It wasn't a problem if you were a grade three school, you were satisfactory. Um, the former chief inspector, Michael Wilshaw, changed that, said he wanted to increase, introduce a mindset that only good was good enough. And so three then became a kind of an underperforming grade when they re rebranded it to requires improvement. And I think there's been a, obviously a big push then across the system for any school that finds itself there to improve. But what the government introduced last year is uh, a new rule that says that if schools are requires improvement twice in a row, the government can intervene, can academize the school, can rebroker the school, can issue an academy order. So the stakes of having um, a requires improvement for a school are now dramatically raised because it basically it could mean you you a change of leadership or it means that the next inspection is a, is, a, is a cliff edge so it's really interesting to see that although the government have kind of um 
you're using RI as a, as, a, as a new threshold for intervention, actually the number of schools that Ofsted finds in that category are to look to be at a record low. Yeah, I, I know schools are obviously already looking at the, the Ofsted framework, but it is really interesting to see the trends here in, in the words that are used in Ofsted reports, and it might give some indication into what schools might want to focus on in the future. Uh, John and Matilda, thank you very much for joining me again and uh, kicking off this new year with this podcast. Hope to see you again next time. Next up, I'm joined by Tez Senior Editor Dan Worth. Dan, welcome back. Hi there. Did you have a, a good Christmas and New Year? I did indeed. Yes, thank you. It was very nice. Um, hope you did too. Yeah, yeah, I definitely had a good one. Definitely uh, made the most of the of the break to uh, get some good good food in and uh, yeah, chill out for a bit. But I think we were saying earlier, you do just get straight back into it, don't you? When you when you come back to work, yeah, you definitely do, and I'm sure our teacher audience knows that all too well. Yeah, so let's let's jump straight back into the podcast, and it's actually. I mean, it's a slightly bleak one to start the new year with. Mm. I think many of you listening will be well aware of the cancer risks of asbestos, but we do have new research that suggests that cancer-related risks to teachers are higher than they are for many other occupations. I guess, first of all, Dan, can you help uh, set the scene here for me? Where does that data come from? Because it, it must be some cause of concern for teachers, right? Yes, and uh, you're, you're right. It is a bleak topic, but, uh, but an important one. And uh, yeah, there's there's sort of a few sort of strands to this in terms of the, the sort of wider research around asbestos and the risk to teachers that have all come together here in this article. Um, so, for example, there's data from the ONS, which reports that, you know, over 300 teachers are known to have died due to the cancer that is often caused by asbestos exposure. Um, about 305, exactly. And, then, and the true figure is probably higher, according to some research from the University of Sheffield. Um, because of some of the way the data is reported, um, you know, if you leave teaching, go to another profession, your final profession is recorded as that, even though you may have caused, you know, picked up the, the cancer while working as a teacher. And also, you know, the, the health and safety executive is doing new inspections of schools on asbestos and uh, some DFE data that isn't new, but is not that old, um, has sort of around three quarters of the entire school estate has some form of asbestos in it. Now, not all of that will be of the same level of concern. So it's, it's an important point to make. It doesn't mean that every school is, is laden with this stuff. But does it exist in some form in, in that many schools? Yes, uh, which is quite a surprising number. And to your, to your question, that means, therefore, you can see why for, for people in education, not just teachers, actually anyone in education, the risk of exposure to asbestos is obviously going to be notably higher than other industries where there just won't that be that much asbestos in buildings. Yeah, so I guess why is it then we're seeing it affect teachers often? I assume it then is something to do with the construction of school buildings. Of course, we know that asbestos has been banned in its entirety since 1999. So it must have been from a certain era that schools were constructed, right? Yes, it's a, it's, it's a good point because it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a complex one in a way because obviously in the, in the post-war era, the baby boom, there was certainly a need for a lot more schools. At the time, asbestos seemed like this sort of wonder material that you could use to make quick, easy, fairly cheap buildings, you know, rocket them up all over the school, um, which sort of started in the late 50s. In fact, there was a, there's a program called the Consortium of Local Authority Special Program, which is CLASP, um, in which, around, which built, you know, thousands of these schools for asbestos and also other buildings like council buildings and, and hospitals and so forth. Um, Unfortunately, they didn't know at the time was asbestos is very dangerous. And if you inhale the, the dust particles that come out of the asbestos construction, um, it, it can cause sort of cancers, um, particularly around the, in the sort of lung area. Um, 
And so if you worked in education for any of that period, you know, from the sort of late 50s onwards, you were at risk. And then obviously the real sort of tragedy you might say of it is that it, the way this cancer works, and I won't claim to be a definitive expert on that, but we do talk to a, a medical expert within the article here, um, explains that it's often in later life that that issue then starts to manifest in your late 60s or after you pass the age of 60. So it means that lots of teachers who were, were you know, great teachers in the 70s and 80s, as, as we kick off this piece by referencing one of them, very sadly, and after they pass their 60s, they, this, this thing comes evident and, uh, and sadly they die. And so it's, it's very um, tragic and it was all, also, you know, unintended consequences of something that happened in the late 50s that is still with us today. Mm. And it's because of the way it is, uh, it does kind of come in later in life. There's also a chance there's going to be another generation here of teachers and perhaps even students that are yet to be affected or have been affected and we won't know until, until That's later. That's right, yeah. And if you were in the schools in the 80s, 90s, but also even now, asbestos is still in the estate. And so if you're inhaling it now, you never really know the issue until later in life. And that, that's, you know, there is no getting away from that. That is a very sort of sobering thought, isn't it? And, and the, the thing to understand, I think it's most important in a way for anyone listening to this, is that asbestos is not dangerous when it's dormant. If you have a, a building made of asbestos and it's in the material, that's sort of okay. It's when you activate it and release the dust fibres and particles, it's dangerous. That's why, and the trouble is, school estates are, are robust environments, right? Kids do fall each other into walls or they throw a ball that knocks a ceiling tile off and the teacher goes up and tries to, you know, puts it down or even, even just pushing pins in the walls. You know, if you're pushing a pin and, and you're releasing dust, it's a bit dangerous. So, Again, the, the important thing really is to be aware that not every school is, is at the same level of risk, so you don't want to sort of panic yourself too much. And that if it's left alone, it's perfectly safe. Um, the most important thing thereafter then is to know where it is in your school estate. And that's what I'll, the other focus of this article was to try and be practical and informative and understand that you can manage this risk well by knowing where it is. So that if a contractor comes in to do some work in the school, if as a teacher you're told that we know there's asbestos on that wall there, do not go knocking into that wall, you know, whatever it might be, um, you can mitigate that risk. And so that's an important consideration. And it's something that more schools, I think, it's pretty fair to say, are starting to recognise the multi-academy trust. We talked to some, uh, you know, an estates manager in this piece who was using a product called U uh, the UK National Asbestos Register, where you can log your asbestos in school so that if a contractor comes in, they can see where it is and hopefully avoid disturbing it. Yeah, well, that, that element that disturbing it is what causes those particles to go up in the air. That also makes it quite difficult to remove, right? Absolutely. Of course, this is the thing, isn't it? Is a lot of people listening to this or people who read the article might just think, well, why don't I just, um, why don't we just remove it? Right? Just, just demolish it and take it away. Well, the act, the act of removing it, as obviously described from the risk that comes from ex sort of exposing it into the air, means that it's very dangerous to remove and often takes a lot of time. Again, the, 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 mat, uh, the estates manager said it took four weeks to, just to prepare to remove some boilers because of removing the asbestos, you know, then, then they could be the actual work. And so again, if you imagine, yeah, you know, demolishing buildings filled with this stuff and the dust that was thrown up, that itself is dangerous. And there's so many of them to take it all down and then rebuild new buildings would be prohibitively expensive. I think one report said a hundred billion pounds. Well, you know, let's just get real. That's not going to happen, even if the health risk is really high. Now, that is the sobering and again, the scary thought is that, you know, they, that, that's just the world we live in, right? We should remove them. We should replace them. Absolutely. But unless something fundamental changes, it's not going to happen. So it really comes down to schools, you know, state managers, uh, CEOs, building control people, understand their risk and manage it correctly and re really reduce the risk to the point where hopefully, you know, we don't see further deaths in the future. Mm. Yeah. And as you said, it's something that's going to be affecting many schools. A lot of school buildings still have this asbestos in it. So we didn't 
uh, we weren't able to cover in this podcast everything that you can do to mitigate that risk. Mm. But in the article, you go into much more detail about it. So if uh, if you're listening and you're concerned about this, do make sure you go and check that article out on our website, as always, tes.com forward slash magazine. Dan, thank you for joining me again today. Not a problem. 